here in Lisney, part two. So what's been on your mind and uh, what sort of theological issues would you like to discuss today? There's, there's a couple major areas I thought we could talk about. Sola Scriptura, for one, Catholic Church tradition and the magisterium and how that relates to sacred scripture, Mariology, of course, and then justification. So those are like the big four areas. All of it really does come down to ultimate authority. So if I might ask you, why is the idea that scripture is the ultimate authority something that is not a pertinent point for you to, to at least look further into? Or why is it something that you think is just a completely non-viable option? Well, you just look at history, right? Does the history teach us that the infallible table of contents fell from the sky into someone's lap? Or does the history teach us that it was a bunch of Catholics getting together in council, hammering it out and using their God-given authority to put the stamp of approval on this particular set of books among many, many candidates? So you have to acknowledge the authority of the Catholic Church. Well... I mean, I I agree in one sense that it was the Catholic Church that closed the canon of Scripture at the Council of Trent, but the Catholic Church did not just codify the canon of Scripture willy-nilly. It was something that obviously was made evident through the Holy Spirit, but there was a pragmatic way that they went about doing it. The first was antiquity. The second was apostolicity. The third was uh, Christian orthodoxy, and the fourth was the universality of it. Was it accepted by the people? So looking at antiquity, could they see in the way that it was written, did it go back to the time of the apostles? And to look at the apostolicity, they were looking for somebody that was an apostle or somebody that was close to an apostle. Looking for orthodoxy, they were checking to see if what they knew by word of mouth comported with the scripture. And then universality of it, how many of the church fathers could they find that were quoting these same scriptures that they were trying to approve? I mean, we have throughout the first 300 years of Christendom, the church fathers single-handedly in their writings quoted all but about six verses of the entire New Testament. Origen had his own list of 27 books of the New Testament that happened to be the actual canon of scripture. Irenaeus had about 21 or 22. Augustine had close to the 27. And I just don't understand if Catholics want to say that Protestants don't have justification for using the canon of scripture, would they not have to say the same thing about the church fathers who saw no qualm in using the scripture that they were using, even though it was prior to the councils of Carthage, Hippo, and the Council of Trent? There's no controversy when you tell me that the church fathers drew on the authority of scripture. Obviously, that's what we have to do. We we are creatures and we depend on the infallible authority of God through his word. That's a fact. But what you're failing to see is that once something is established as defined, we are not free to tamper with it. Okay, so when you start teaching contrary to that doctrine, you're in deep trouble. Well, I have no problem following church tradition when the doctrine it is espousing can either explicitly or at least implicitly be found in scripture. But there is doctrine that the Catholic Church will openly admit has no basis in scripture. For instance, the Assumption of Mary, one of the foremost Catholic apologists, Carl Keating, I'm sure you know him from Catholic Answers, specifically says in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, 
Fundamentalist asks, where do you get this notion of the assumption of Mary? Strictly speaking, there is none. There's an openness in the church. It's an open question in the church. When we ask the church, do all dogmas go back to something that is explicitly to be found in scripture, or do some of them rely exclusively on tradition, the church says, we don't know yet. It's not defined yet. So you could find an example of someone that's very confident in his school that's going to say, well, yeah, there are examples like the Assumption of Mary or whatever it is that rely exclusively on tradition, but there would be someone in the other camp that will say, no, it has to go back to scripture. So it's not actually the case that all of the scholars agree with that quote that you just gave. There are two major camps, and it's an open question, which means that we don't need to lay awake at night worrying about it. It's not essential to my salvation to know which part of tradition is independent of the written word of God. It's not essential to my salvation that I know that. If you want to know what's essential to be saved, go to the Catholic Church. It's that simple. Yeah, but it's not that simple, though, David, because sure, I don't have to know how tradition and scripture work hand in hand with one another. However, it is essential to use my God-given reasoning to determine if whether or not the tradition that's being told to me is actually accurate and something that I should be believing in. This idea that we have to submit our mind completely and just believe something, even if we can't understand it, that's okay. We're not going to understand everything, but we do have a duty to at least try and, and ascertain what it is that's being given to us. Scripture is made very clear in such plain words that the essential truths for the Christian faith, justification, grace, the Christology of Jesus, the nature of the Trinity— all of these essential doctrines are made so plain in Scripture, but now it's the ecclesiastical body that has primacy over everything, and that's when you start getting into hot water. So whereas I believe in sola scriptura, you believe in sola ecclesia, and it's not something that we can establish from Scripture. We don't have any examples of people bowing their knee to an ultimate authority that is not from a prophet of God or from the very Word of God. There's no example that can be shown to that effect. I have an example for you. Go ahead. Matthew 23.3. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so practice and observe everything they tell you but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, burdensome loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Nothing has changed. It's the same thing today. If people complain about corruption in the church, just go straight to Matthew 23, 3. Do what they say. And so when Jesus Christ, the God-man, said to Peter and the apostles, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, he wasn't joking around. He conferred authority infallible authority on Peter, the apostles, and their successors. Yes, that is spoken to Peter, but it says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Future tense, go two chapters in front of that, the beginning of Matthew 18. All of the apostles are arguing about who's going to be greatest. And what does Jesus do? He pulls a child aside and says, unless you become like this child, you shall not enter heaven. Then go to Matthew 18, 18 when he's talking about reconciliation, and he says to all of the disciples who are present, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's an exact word for word verbatim. What he just said to Peter two paragraphs before, 
And Peter is the first one to preach to the Jews on Pentecost, and he's the first one to preach to the Gentiles. Then all of the other disciples that also were told that they were going to obtain the keys to the kingdom did the same thing that Peter did, but after him. So you have the same, you have a literal parallel between Matthew and the Acts of the Apostles where you see this in action, where he is literally opening. And there's even a reference in the scripture that says, Peter opened the door to the Gentiles for salvation. So if we're going to base something as huge as the, the, the papal supremacy, you know, over 1.2 billion people's heads and say that salvation hinges on that, we better make darn sure that there's at least more than the Matthew 16 reference to Jesus giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's just not convincing. The way to sort of cut this Gordian knot, because it can get very hairy and messy when we start pulling out passages from the Bible. Uh, The way to cut this Gordian knot is to simply tell me, where is the church today? Where can I find the church? How can I join the church? Where is the church that Jesus Christ built? It's very simple. And I said this the last time that you and I spoke, the church is not one single institution. It is a spiritual institution upon which we all are little stones that are being built up into the temple of God. Just as scripture says, there are real Christians in church of God. There are real Christians in Presbyterian churches. There are real Christians in the Catholic church. There are real Christians all over. As long as they hold to the central and core doctrines of the Christian faith, which are, how are we justified? Obviously, the person of Jesus Christ, how did he come to dwell upon earth? Who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? What is the nature of Scripture? All of these things, these are all central doctrines. And this trope being thrown around that there's 28,000 different Protestant denominations, it's baloney. It's total baloney. If you take down all these peripheral issues, oh, is it pedo-baptism or is it credo-baptism? Oh, uh, we should celebrate the Eucharist quarterly. No, we should do it monthly. No, we should do it every time we get together. If we could stop fussing about these things, the core Christian tenets would still be there. That is the whole point. That is the church of God, David. It's not, Jesus said, wherever one or two gather in my name, there I will be also. So it's not in any one institution, in any one physical building. It is in the spiritual body of Christ. God did not leave us orphans. And Jesus Christ said, it's better for you that I go. God promised that there will always be a visible hierarchy, a visible government in his church that he built. So would I rather have Jesus Christ walking the earth or would I rather have the Catholic Church? I'd rather have the Catholic Church. Why? Because it's better. It's better for me that Jesus Christ left and he sent his Holy Spirit to guide us. His Holy Spirit is the soul of his mystical body, which is the Catholic Church. It's better for me. But you don't have that. You can't say that. You have to contradict Jesus Christ and you have to say, well, it would actually be better for me as a Protestant if Jesus Christ were walking the earth today. That's what you have to say. Or you have to point me to the mystical body of Jesus Christ, which Paul talks about very clearly. Otherwise, you're contradicting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's that simple. I don't see a contradiction in regards to my point that we're still one with other believers who happen to be of a different denomination or whatever. Well, then why all the fuss? If we have Christian unity, as you're claiming, then why all the fuss? Oh, because 
because we disagree on essential truths. Now, obviously, we agree on some pretty big ones. You know, we agree on the Trinity. We agree on the deity of Christ and a number of things. But we also disagree on some essentials. Well, I believe all of it on the authority of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. You believe it based on private judgment of a dusty old book. And St. Augustine famously said, I would not believe that dusty old book were it not for the authority of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And uh, he's not alone in that. It's the only way to approach religion to bow to a God-given authority. And your private judgment is not a God-given authority. It's not the Holy Spirit contradicting itself, right? Well, I mean, this is from um, Augustine. Uh, whereas, therefore, in every question which relates to life and conduct, not only teaching, but exhortation also is necessary, in order that by teaching we may know what is to be done, and by exhortation may be incited not to think it irksome to do what we already know is to be done. What more can I teach you than what we read in the Apostles? For Holy Scripture establishes a rule to our teaching that we dare not be wiser than we ought, quoting Scripture there, be wise, as he himself says, unto soberness, according as unto each God hath allotted the measure of faith. Again, he's quoting scripture. Be it not therefore for me to teach you any other thing, save to expound to you the words of the teacher and to treat of them as the Lord shall have given to me. For the reasonings of any man whatsoever, even though they be true Christians and of high reputation, are not to be treated by us in the same way as the canonical scriptures are treated. We are at liberty without doing any violence to the respect which these men deserve to condemn and reject anything in their writings if perchance we shall find that they have entertained opinions differing from that which others or we ourselves have by the divine help discovered to be the truth. I deal thus with the writings of others and I wish my intelligent readers to deal thus with mine. That is the most wise thing that I've heard outside of scripture in regards to scripture. You keep hammering this point that the scriptures are valuable. I know that they're valuable, and I know it on the authority of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. You know it by private judgment. No, I know it because scripture tells me so. You know it because you say the church tells you so. Well, you said something interesting earlier. You said that it's very clear, all of the essential saving truths, those doctrines are very clear for anyone that reads scripture. I highly disagree because there's so much contention and so much disagreement among professed Christians pertaining to even such fundamental things as free will, grace, sanctification, justification, not to mention, of course, ecclesiology. I mean, there's so much that is contentious that it seems absurd to me that you would say that it's crystal clear when you read the scriptures what the proper interpretation is. I think that when you read scripture without any bias to it whatsoever, you're going to get clear answers. But I wanted to ask you about John 6, since you're all about clear and straightforward interpretation of the scriptures. What do you make of John 6? Uh, this is in regards to the Eucharist. Yeah. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're doomed. My my. Okay, so let me pull it up really quick. Okay, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live 
live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he does before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. So right there in verse 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and of life. That is the key to interpreting the rest of that. Then he compares it to the ascension. Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? He's contrasting the amazement of what he's saying with what they're going to see. Something two inexplicable things at one time saying, you're not going to believe this. These words are spirit. So that is how I would interpret that passage, but then go further down the line to the last supper when you see Jesus break the bread and uh, pour the drink, and he, of course, gives what Catholics believe to be the first appointment of the Mass. Well, there's a couple problems with that. Number one, Jesus hadn't died for sins yet. Catholics say, well, it's, his, his death is outside of space and time, so it did affect that Eucharist. Okay, but Jesus is fully intact. Did you hear Saint Aug- what St. Augustine said about that, about our Lord holding himself in his own hands at the Last Supper? I did not read that, no. But my my question to you is, how do you interpret his words that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? That was a very simple question. I'd like a simple answer, please. What do you think he meant? Oh, I think that he means partake of him fully. I think that he means um, be one with Jesus. I think it's it's quite simple. I think there is an institution of the Eucharist, and it, there is possibly a real presence that comes alongside of it a form of consubstantiation as opposed to transubstantiation. That's what Luther said. Yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah, but that's a 16th century novelty. (laughs) To say that this is something that didn't crop up until the 16th century, that's kind of the pot calling the kettle black, man. You have so many doctrines in the Catholic Church that don't crop up until sometimes even a millennial after Christendom has been established. Yeah, but I have a church and I have authority, so that's the difference. That you're just willing to believe blindly, that you're not willing to check with Scripture. You're totally okay with the fact that the assumption of Mary is not in Scripture. There's not even a hint of it. Sure there is, yeah. We have the example of Enoch being taken to heaven without dying. That's Genesis 5.24. Then we have Elijah assumed into heaven in a fiery chariot, 2 Kings 2.11. And then we have many saints who have fallen asleep were raised in Matthew 27.52. And then you have uh, those that are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then you have 1 Corinthians 15.52. We shall be instantly changed at the last trumpet. And then we have Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And then we have... Revelation eleven nineteen and twelve one, the ark in heaven is the woman clothed with the sun. That's just from my little cheat sheet, and then I've got a book of dogmas that gives a formal explanation of all the uh, scriptural passages. I'll look that up while you're uh, talking. Okay. Um, yeah. So my issue with that is that none of those pertain to Mary. 
Of course, we know that there were people, Enoch, Elijah, that ascended into heaven. It's they were... technically incorrect to say that they ascended into heaven. It, we would say that they were assumed because it's a passive thing. Only God can ascend, but we, we can be assumed by God. Okay, so with that in mind, again, I just don't see the scriptural support to say that Mary was assumed into heaven. And the first time that we start to see the assumption of Mary creep into the church is in a body of work from the 5th and 6th centuries that were proven false. They were basically a bunch of Gnostic Gospels that were written by a bunch of over-pious people who essentially worshipped Mary and tried to forge these documents by showing that they were from the earliest centuries of Christendom. One example is the pseudo-John, the theologian, from the Dormition of the Holy Mother of God, that's from the 5th century, the Pseudo-Melito of Sardis, the passing of the Blessed Mary from the 5th century, Pseudo-Cyril of Jerusalem, from the Discourse on Mary, the Mother of God from the 5th-6th century, Pseudo-Avodius of Rome, so on and so forth. So that's when we first start to see the assumption, and many popes around it condemned it because there was no way from Scripture to back that up, and it's pointless to speculate. It's not pointless to speculate. There's much pious speculation in church history, and it's an essential component. But the Catholic Church thinks that it's pointless to speculate on interpretations of Scripture. No, it's not. We're encouraged to interpret Scripture. We have a lot of freedom in the church. But it has to conform to the doctrines of Rome. Well, once something is established by God Almighty, infallibly, it's foolishness to argue against God, right? It's foolishness, and it's a damnable sin. Yeah, but is the source that it's coming from actually God? Well, that's the question. That's the fundamental question. Where is the infallible church that the God-man established when he was on earth. We need a sure way of knowing what are the essential saving truths. You don't have that, but I have that because I have a visible church with a visible hierarchy. And this is the fundamental difference between my worldview and your worldview is that I have security that I have the church that Jesus Christ built. I know where to find it. I know the URL of the website. I know what the essential teachings are. I know where I can speculate, where I'm not allowed to speculate. And uh, I have all of that, but you don't have that. You just have your Bible and your interpretation of your Bible. And of course, you are willing to listen to those who you admire in history, like Luther or Calvin or whoever it is that you that you trust. I'm also willing to test them. Yeah, of course. But it's all it all comes down to you. It all comes down to your private judgment. That's the difference. Well, it, it says the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth. Yeah. So then what are you worried about? Why are you worried about myself and your brother and your father if that's the case? Because I don't believe that you're being led by the Holy Spirit. I believe that you're being I just, I just, I just believe that you're being led by a man who's claiming to be the vicar of Jesus Christ. You guys are positing the truth claim that you have the authority. All Protestants are doing is trying to take a step back and say, hey, I don't know if that's true. Let's subject this to something. The problem with the papacy and quote unquote papal infallibility is that it's subject to nothing but itself. It is something that is totally self-assuring. No, it's a mystical marriage, as St. Paul said. It's a deep mystery. But why can you not direct me to the church? Why is it invisible? Why don't you organize yourselves and have a set of writings that can propagate the established truths, the essential saving truths? Why don't you put them all together on a website so that Christians can find it, right? I, well, I think you're actually right. Uh, there are a lot of sites that state their profession of faith and what you will find almost unanimously, unless it's some extreme sect of Christianity, you're going to find the same basic truths on core, essential, salvific, doctrinal issues. So they won't have any issue signing up to sign on to your website then, right? 
Are you trying to push me into making a website? No, but I'm, I mean, I am being facetious. I think you know that. I think you know that I, I don't believe that you have the one true religion, but you're resisting entering into the church, I think, because you are proud and you don't want to obey. You want to do your own thing. That's the main reason why people stay outside of the church, because they don't want to submit. They don't want to bow to a man, even if it's a man that's appointed by God to be the vicar of Christ. I mean, it's just pride. That's how I see it. Jesus is the head. Jesus has always been the head. Yeah, he's still the head. But if we look at any of the non-Catholic Christian bodies, what we see is a decline in morality. We see that divorce is accepted. We see that contraception is accepted. We see that abortion is accepted. We see a pattern. We always see the same pattern. If I look at the history of the church that you like to go to, and I look at the history of that church, it will have a history. And it will go back to the Catholic Church, and we will see how they dropped one doctrine after another, and one sacrament after another, until they're left with Bible alone, or whatever these core doctrines are that you claim are the Christian truths. It's just a historical fact. Look at the history. To be steeped in history is to cease to be Protestant. Yeah, to, to be steeped in history is to see the folly of the Catholic Church, is really what it is. When you are merely talking about Scripture, and you compare it to... Bible-believing evangelical churches today, you will find a much closer representation of the early church than you will with the Catholic Church. In regards to the priesthood, there was no priesthood for the first few hundred years of Christendom. In regards to the priesthood, you see a bunch of additions added to it, like, for instance, the forced celibacy. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, here's what Paul says to Timothy. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry. Catholic priests were forbidden in 1139 to marriage. Now you can say that they opt into that knowing full well that they are not going to be allowed to stay married. But Whereas today, if a Catholic priest comes into the priesthood and he's already married, he's allowed to keep his wife. Back in those times, he was forced to disavow his wife. He was not allowed to have any children with her. And many of them became prostitutes and died in the streets because the priests were so forced into celibacy because the church was interested in making sure that they didn't produce heirs that could lay claim to their riches, or to their property. This is historical fact that the Catholic Church abused the priesthood and used it as a means to obtain more wealth, more property. And today, the Vatican is the wealthiest landowner in the entire world. They own more property than any other conglomeration on this planet. The whole universe is Catholic, so everything is owned by the church because the church is one with Jesus Christ. The church owns everything. And the thing is that marriage is a sacrament. Uh, I don't view it as a sacrament. Okay, so who has a higher view of marriage? Me, the Catholic, or you, the Protestant? Who has a higher view of marriage? Just tell me, honestly. Okay, I'll acquiesce. I'll say you have the higher view of marriage because you see it as a sacrament. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just a bit of a straw man argument what you're proposing there, and that's a very common one. But if you came to believe that the Holy Roman Catholic Church is the one true church established by the God-man Jesus Christ, would you join it? Of course. I want to go where Christ leads me. Okay. Now set me up with something to ask me if I would be tempted to join the Protestant Church. How would that work? I don't think that you would be convinced to join the Protestant Church because you say there are many things that you have hardlined 
in your doctrine that if found out to not be true, you would abandon Jesus Christ. The first time that I heard you say it, you said that if you found out that Mary had other sons and daughters, you would abandon Jesus Christ. That is the most silly thing I have ever heard. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. But Jesus didn't say that his mom didn't have any other kids. The Pope infallibly defined that that was so. But that was that was 600 years after Christ. So why, why do you have to disavow Christ if somebody who said something about him was dishonest or misinformed? Either God's given us an infallible authority. Which he has in scripture. A living authority. It is a living authority. It's the living word of God. Well, then we don't have any problem, do we? You, you said, <laughs> yeah, but David, but apparently... <laughs> But apparently, apparently we do, man. You said that I'm proud for not acquiescing and bowing to the one true holy Catholic church. Yeah. But I say that you're being proud and not bowing to scripture. I do bow to scripture. But, but, but you don't, though. You bow primarily to the Roman Catholic church. You put the magisterium over tradition and over scripture. And you, by necessity, you have to, because the church is the only one that can infallibly interpret scripture and tradition. The church has infallibly declared that she is the servant of the word of God. So what is the word of God? It's Jesus Christ. What is the Catholic church? It's Jesus Christ. Who instituted the sacraments? Jesus Christ. Who built the church? Jesus Christ. It's all Jesus Christ. Whereas in your Protestant worldview, it comes down to your private judgment. That's a reality. It may be disagreeable to admit it, but that's reality. It's private judgment. And I'm submitting to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in the word, the word made flesh, the word in scripture and his mystical body, the church. Dude, a million other points just got brought up in my mind. Can I just carry this by saying that you and I are going to have to do like a part three at some point or something? Cause... Yeah, yeah, sure. What we need to do is we need to really nail down something where we can make progress one way or the other. And I can tell you, I'm not going to budge. I'm not going to budge. I mean, well, I'm, I, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that I'm not going to budge because... If I did find the Catholic Church to be the one true church of Jesus Christ, then of course I would submit to it. Yeah, whereas there's nothing you could say ever that would make me Protestant, ever. See, that's sad, though. <laughs> I need a living authority. You have it. It's Scripture. Scripture is the living, breathing Word of God. If God breathed it, what does that mean? The very breath of God. Have you read any bad commentary or bad interpretation of Scripture and compared it with the interpretation of the saints? It comes alive. It's a living weapon that comes alive in the hands of a master, the hands of an inspired saint. Which saint? Any saint. All right. Well, so then let's go to a doctor of the church, St. Alphonsus Liguori. Sure. One of my favorites. Um, very, very beautiful poet. It seems like very misguided, in fact. Let me just caveat this by saying that this is totally abhorrent to me. And if there are people listening that disagree with this, you know, I apologize for reading these, but I find these pretty damnable things to say. But this is from St. Alphonsus Liguori. So here's the first quote. Most holy virgin immaculate, my mother Mary, to thee who art the mother of my Lord, the queen of the universe, the advocate, the hope, the refuge of sinners, I who am the most miserable of all sinners have recourse this day. I venerate thee, great queen, and I thank thee for the many graces thou hast bestowed upon me even unto this day, in particular for having delivered me from hell, which I have so often deserved by my sins. I love thee most dear lady, and for the love I bear thee, I promise to serve thee willingly forever and to do what I can to make thee loved by others also. I place in thee all my hopes for salvation. 
Accept me as thy servant and shelter me under thy mantle, thou who art the mother of mercy. It goes on and on. But that, that is as clear as it gets. He's placing his hopes for salvation in somebody who can't save him. He's counting on her to deliver him from hell. She can't do that. Here's another one. He who wishes to find Jesus will do so only by having recourse to Mary. Really? No person has ever found Jesus Christ unless they went through Mary? Let's see. Here's another one. Da, 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 da. Woe to him who neglects to recommend himself to Mary and thus closes the channel of grace. Closes the channel of grace. The channel of grace comes from Jesus Christ and his salvific work on the cross. Yeah. It comes from the head through the neck. Mary is the neck. So you can't interpret any, you can't exegete anything in scripture that says that. The only thing, Mary, it, she is highly favored. Yes. Uh, Full of grace. Full of grace is actually favored one, but you cannot exegete anything from scripture that says that Jesus Christ came through Mary as a man. The man Christ Jesus came through Mary. She did not bear God. She bore God the son in his humanity. She is, of course, subject to him, which I know you would agree with. But all of this language this is approved by the Vatican. This entire work of St. Alphonsus Liguori, all of this is approved. How can you look at that and say that that's a proper exegesis of Scripture? You're getting that from nowhere. It says Mary obtains salvation for all who have recourse to her. Oh, if all sinners had recourse to Mary, who would ever be lost? He who is protected by her will be saved. He who is not will be lost. And you know what this kind of talk has led to? People believing that if they die with a brown scapular on, that they're going to be taken out of purgatory, another doctrine I completely disagree with, the Saturday after they die. People place so much trust in Mary because they have a skewed view of who Jesus is. That Most Catholics, and I know that you're not one of them, but most Catholics look at Jesus as someone who is indifferent, who's hard, and they look at God the Father as someone who is absolutely terrifying. Mary obtains the salvation. Oh, we go to Mary, and then she will petition, and they have to listen to Mary. Oh, well, really? When Mary was beckoning Jesus to come out when he was talking to the disciples, he said, who is my mother and my brothers? I'll tell you, those who do the will of my father are my mother, my brother, and my sister. And he completely rejected going outside to Mary, his grieving mother at that time, who also... And the parallel text talks about how his family, and then it says Mary and his brothers went to go find him, thought that he was out of his mind. So where do you get this idea that Mary can obtain for you salvation? It's totally absurd. It doesn't make any sense at all. And to say that, yes, dude, my interpretation of scripture, I'm not a biblical scholar, but you don't have to be. What did the eunuch say? He didn't even understand how to read basically or interpret the scripture of Isaiah before Philip said to him and explained to him what it was. And then he says, Oh, wow. So this unlearned man is then, he then says, well, what must I do to get baptized? And what does Philip say? Believe and you shall be baptized. Yeah. The church instructed him and he submitted to the church for the sacraments. And it's all very Catholic. That's, that's again, that's your interpretation. The plain text shows that individuals who are not academics, they're just the run-of-the-mill. It is the scripture is so clear on the essentials. He could not understand. Even, even, even the most he could not understand unless someone showed him. That's the point. 
he could not understand unless someone showed him and an apostle showed him he's he represents the church so the church gave him what he could not derive from the scriptures on his own he said how can i understand unless someone teaches me yeah uh, so this is acts 17 verse 10 through 12 as soon as it was night the believers sent paul and silas away to berea on arriving there they went to the jewish synagogue now the berean jews were of more noble character than those in thessalonica for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what paul said was true as a result many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And those Bereans that unfortunately left Paul aside and said, no, I don't believe you. They were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because at least they checked the scriptures. They just came up with an erroneous interpretation. You can't explain your way out of that one. Well, I can't explain my way out of it because I have no idea what your point is. Okay. So we have the word many here. Many of them believed many women, many Greek men. You do not see all of the Bereans following Paul after they have interpreted scripture for themselves to see if what he was saying was true. Many of them believed, which proves my point that some of the Bereans who studied the scriptures did not see fit to follow Paul or to follow Jesus Christ after that fact that they tried interpreting the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. He allowed them to interpret the scripture for themselves. Yeah, I don't see a problem with that. I told you at the outset that the church gives us a lot of freedom in interpreting scripture. There are very few passages that are nailed down. So this story about Bereans is not about a bunch of rebels that are contradicting Jesus Christ, right? So you think I'm a rebel? You think that I'm a rebel that's disagreeing with Jesus Christ? Yeah, private judgment. The key point is obedience. You need to be submissive and obedient to the mystical body of Jesus Christ. No, no. Yes, but... You understand that I can say that the Pope is using private judgment to pronounce infallibility on certain scriptures, right? Yeah, because you'd, obviously if you believed what I believe, you would be Catholic. So, I mean, that goes without saying that you think he's full of baloney. Not entirely full of baloney, just most of the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, at the end of my interviews, I, I'd like to leave a positive message for the listener, if you would, please. Um, yeah, so... Obviously, this stuff is all pretty hairy. We get into some pretty deep and nasty water when we talk about this stuff. You know, we obviously have a lot of differences, but I look forward to, to trying to hash more of them out. And um, anybody who is searching, like I'm searching, like my brother Aiden, who's searching, anybody who's doing that, don't stop searching. Just keep searching. It's really, really um, edifying to do so, to look to the word of God, to look into the church history. It's something that will only bring you closer to Jesus Christ. It might offset you a bit at first. It might make you uncomfortable, but just keep pursuing the truth and you will find it. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.